evening, everybody. It's a very great pleasure to be with you here this evening. My name is Maureen Kennelly. I'm the director of the Arts Council. And I'd like to say a huge thanks to everybody here at Seamus Heaney Home Place for their extremely warm welcome to us all here today. And I'd like to say thanks to my team at the Arts Council for all that they do to bring this terrific programme to you. And special thanks to Derek Makanumra and Audrey Keane for their work in making this evening possible. Colm Tobin is Ireland's third laureate for fiction, and how thrilled we are that he agreed to take on this vital three-year role at the end of last year. In signposting what his term was to be about, he talked about building communities of readers, referring to reading as an art form in and of itself. He pledged to recognise the vitality and excitement in the act of reading and thinking about books. So I want to say a very special thanks to you all here this evening for making up this community of readers and listeners for us. In Colm's first lecture last year in the Town Hall Theatre in Galway, he was reflecting on the beauty of the music making of Moira and Trina Nigonal and others. And he spoke of the excitement of something that might not have happened. And this for me says much about what Colm does through his work. He continues to make the unexpected happen to make what was once invisible, visible. Before and since that lecture, Colm has introduced the work of many stellar Irish writers to communities of readers and admirers in Ballymun, Cashel, Kinsale, and many, many other towns across the island of Ireland. And in doing so, he's been bringing alive their brilliant writing to a multitude of communities. The arts change lives, and they have the power to change a community's idea about itself. And it's very pleasurable to think about such things here at the heart of a community that has been immeasurably changed by the life and work of Seamus Heaney. And it is most apt to be introducing Colm Tobin in this very space, for he has done similar things for his native Enniscorthy, Wexford, Ireland, and for many terrains beyond. Like Heaney, Colm rejoices in gathering communities together without any hint of artifice or pretension or arrogance. He's only interested in glorying in the power of language. And this evening, Colm, the supreme collaborator, has gathered together the majestic talents of Cathy Belton, one of this country's finest actors, and Martin Hayes, master fiddle player. Together, they will credit and create marvels for us. Colm has been a lifelong evangelist for the art form of poetry. And it was no real surprise then that his first collection of poems, Vinegar Hill, appeared at the end of 2022. Writing about that collection, the writer Martina Evans said, the underworld's pull, always the strongest current in Tobin's work, has become the main event. And in speaking about his poems, Colm cited Joseph Brodsky's line, Grief and reason are language's most efficient fuel. And much of this will resonate in the beautiful piece that you're about to hear. Colm, we owe you a huge debt for your own work across its many, many forms, for your brilliant ongoing work as laureate for fiction, and for putting poetry where it belongs, here firmly at the heart of everyday life. We're here in the Helicon at Seamus Heaney Home Place, which takes its name from that brilliant, much-loved poem, Personal Helicon, dedicated to Heaney's great friend, the poet Michael Longley. The beautiful last lines read, as you know, I'm sure, 
I rhyme to see myself to set the darkness echoing. We're absolutely blessed this evening to be amongst these remarkable artists who will allow us see ourselves and whom I know will set this darkness echoing. Will you please give a very warm welcome to Colm Tobin, Cathy Belton and Martin Hayes.
The Underground by Seamus Heaney. There we were in the vaulted tunnel running. You in your going away coat speeding ahead. And me. Me then like a fleet god gaining upon you before you turn to a reed. Or some new white flower jacked with crimson as the coat flapped wild and button after button sprang off and fell in a trail between the underground and the Albert Hall. Honeymooning, mooning around, late for the proms. Our echoes die in that corridor. And now I come as Hansel came on the moonlight stones, retracing the path back, lifting the buttons to end up in a drafty, lamplit station after the trains had gone. The wet track, bared and tensed as I am. All attention for your step following. And damned if I look back. I want to consider the title of this poem by Seamus Heaney and also its very last line. The title, The Underground, is simple. It's a literal title. It is where they were. They are on their honeymoon in London on their way to a concert. She is still in her going away coat. They're running because they're late. This moment, this memory, is enacted in the first stanza by verbs of motion, running, speeding, gaining. But when we come to the third line, with me then like a fleet god gaining, we are in another underground, or in the underground become an underworld. The fleet god is Pan, who is pursuing the wood nymph strings. At her own request, she will be turned into a reed that will help make his pipes. By the last line, she is no longer being pursued by the fleet god. She is following. He has moved ahead. It is no longer a mythical image of pursuit. The meaning has darkened. Because it is the poem not embracing love, but defying death. And the image of death is invoked by the man ahead, damned if I look back. And the woman following. From the innocence of Pan and his pipes, we move towards the dark knowledge possessed by Orpheus, the other musician who's seeking to guide his wife, Eurydice, out of the underworld and can succeed only if he does not look back. Damned if I look back. And Ovid, the Roman poet, wrote the story in his Metamorphosis how Eurydice, Orpheus's newly wed bride, died, having been bitten by a snake. And how Orpheus implored the gods to allow him to take her back into the world. It was agreed that he could do so. He would be allowed to lead her up the winding path out of the shadows, but if he once looked back, even for one second, she would have to return to her place of death. This is Ovid, translated by David Rayburn. In deadly silence, the two of them followed the upward slope. The track was steep. It was dark and shrouded in thick black mist. Not far to go now. 
the exit to earth and the light was ahead. But Orpheus was frightened. His love was falling behind. He was desperate to see her. He turned. And at once she sank back into the dark. She stretched out her arms to him. Struggled to feel his hands on her own, but all she was able to catch, poor soul, was the yielding air. And now, as she died for the second time, she never complained that her husband had failed her. What could she complain of? Except that he loved her. She only uttered the last farewell. So faintly, he hardly could hear it. And then she was swept once more to the land of the shadows. Poets, the idea of the underworld entering its portals or finding a way to entice someone back into the world or finding someone among the hordes of the dead to whom we wish especially to speak has an enormous lure because it does what poetry does best. It begins with the world itself, human urges, human desires, the things that are around us. And it tries to find a way to lift what is ordinary, worldly and plain into some other realm. If a poem could raise the dead or even speak to the dead, then what is more powerful than a poem? In Stepping Stones, his book of interviews with Dennis O'Driscoll, Shemitini spoke with reverence about book six of Virgil's Aeneid. I like that book of the Aeneid so much, she said, I'm inclined to translate it as a separate unit. In a note to his translation, he wrote that he took special note of it after my father died, since the story it tells is of Aeneas' journey to meet the shade of his father, and she says, in the land of the dead. But while the scene between Anchises and his son seems otherworldly beyond the experience of most humans, it dramatizes a moment between the dead father and his questing son that is only too human, a moment when the son realizes that his father cannot be touched. But first, there is a delight at seeing each other, like something real that is in a dream. But seeing Aeneas come wading through the grass towards him, he reached his two hands out in eager joy. His eyes filled up with tears and he gave a cry, at last, are you here at last? I always trusted that your sense of right would prevail and keep you going to the end. And am I now allowed to see your face, my son, and hear you talk? and talk to you myself. This is what I imagined and looked forward to as I counted the days, and my trust has not been misplaced. To think of the lands and the outlying seas you have crossed, my son, to receive this welcome, and after such dangers. I was afraid that Africa might be your undoing. But Aeneas replied, Often and often, Father, you would appear to me. Your sad shade would appear. And that kept me going to this end. 
My ships are anchored in the Tuscan Sea. Let me take your hand, my father. Oh, let me, and do not hold back from my embrace. And as he spoke, he wept. Three times he tried to reach arms around that neck. Three times the form reached for in vain escaped like a breeze between his hands. A dream on wings. That idea of a figure caught between two worlds has the appeal of a ghost story. But it also stands for the poem itself that hovers over the real world, but attempts to lift language and image out of the ordinariness, ordinariness that conveys information into a place that might seem more real or more resonant and also more mysterious. The question in the story of Orpheus and Eurydice is not, will Orpheus look behind? We know the answer, he will. The question is, what will it be like? And what fresh images will be released from the images invoked? Since Orpheus played the lyre, what could a poem say about his music? And what if Eurydice's vanishing back into the shade was always going to happen? And what if there was a 20th century poet felt a vague weariness at the whole story. This is from a poem by the American poet, John Ashbery. The seasons are no longer what they once were, but it is the nature of things to be seen only once as they happen along, bumping into other things, getting along somehow. That's where Orpheus made his mistake. Of course, Eurydice vanished into the shade. She would have, even if he hadn't turned around. No use standing there like a grey stone toga as the whole wheel of recorded history flashes past, struck dumb, unable to utter an intelligent comment on the most thought-provoking element in its train. Only love stays on the brain. And something these people, these other ones, call life. Singing accurately so that the notes mount straight up out of the well of dim noon and rival the tiny, sparkling yellow flowers growing around the brink of the quarry encapsulates the different weights of the things. But it isn't enough to just go on singing. Orpheus realized this and didn't mind so much about his reward being in heaven after the Bacantes had torn him apart, driven half out of their minds by his music, what it was doing to them. Some say it was for his treatment of Eurydice. But probably the music had more to do with it and the way that music passes, emblematic of life, and how you cannot isolate a note of it and say it's good or bad, you must wait till it's over.
Orpheus, after his wife's death, is everything we want him to be. He is a poet, he's a dreamer, he's a visionary, he is a man locked in grief. And Eurydice, where is she? Where, what is she? She too can be imagined, recreated, and glowingly described as in the poem Orpheus Alone by the American poet Mark Strand. Her forehead where the golden light of the evening spread, the curve of her neck, the slope of her shoulders, everything down to her thighs and calves, letting the words come as if lifted from sleep to drift upstream against the water's will where all the condemned and pointless labour stunned by his voice's cadence would come to a halt. And even the crazed, dishevelled furies for the first time would weep and the soot-filled air would clear just enough for her. The lost bride to step through the image of herself and be seen in the light. Is it possible that something else is needed here, some other tone, some other perspective? We know now how Orpheus felt. We know what Eurydice looked like. But what did Eurydice feel? Who is there to speak for her? Although Margaret Atwood's poem is called Orpheus, it is merely addressed to him as though he were the one who was a shade. It is narrated in the voice of Eurydice. You walked in front of me, pulling me back out to the green light that had once grown fangs and killed me. I was obedient, but numb, like an arm gone to sleep. The return to time was not my choice. By then I was used to silence, though something stretched between us like a whisper, like a rope, my former name drawn tight. You had your old leash with you, love, you might call it, and your flesh voice. Before your eyes, you held steady the image of what you wanted me to become. Living again. It was this hope of yours that kept me following. I was your hallucination, listening and floral. And you were singing me. Already new skin was forming on me within the luminous misty shroud of my other body. Already there was dirt on my hands and I was thirsty. I can only see the outline of your head and shoulders, black against the cave mouth, and so could not see your face at all, when you turned and called to me because you had already lost me. The last I saw of you was a dark oval. Though I knew how this failure would hurt you, 
I had to fold like a grey moth and let go. You could not believe I was more than your echo. It is as though there's a great battle going on between men and women over how we see this myth or this human story. For male poets, 
and for many it remains a most haunting scene, Orpheus has struggled to win Eurydice back as though he could perform magic. And then Orpheus's determination does battle against his weakness, his idealism hits against his frail humanity. And of all the versions of this story, perhaps the most beautiful was written in German in 1904. It was composed by the poet Rainer Maria Rilke, who was born in Prague in 1875 and died in Switzerland in 1926. His poem, Orpheus, Eurydice, Hermes, has an evocation of the unsettled, uneasy journey from the underworld into the light, with Orpheus ahead more and more unsure that the other two, his wife Eurydice, and the messenger god Hermes are really following. His senses felt as though they were split in two. His sight would race ahead of him like a dog, stop, come back, then rushing off again, would stand impatient at the path's next turn. But his hearing, like an odour, stayed behind. Sometimes it seemed to him as though it reached back to the footsteps of those other two who were following him up the long path home. But then, once more, it was just his own steps echo on the wind inside his cloak, the mither sound. He said to himself, they had to be behind him said it aloud and heard it fade away. They had to be behind him. But their steps were ominously soft. If only could turn around just once, but looking back would ruin this entire work so near completion. Then he could not fail to see them, those other two who followed him so softly. Rilke has Eurydice following, but not impatiently. She, Eurydice, is not even sure that it is, in fact, Orpheus ahead. He has been reduced in her eyes to someone or other. Her death has taken up all her energies. She was already loosened like long hair, poured out like fallen rain shared like a limitless supply. She was already root. And when abruptly the god put out his hand to stop her, saying with sorrow in his voice, he has turned around. She could not understand and softly answered, who? Far away, Dark before the shining exit gate, someone or other stood whose features were unrecognizable. He stood and saw how, on the strip of road among the meadows, with a mournful look, the god of messages silently turned to follow the small figure already walking back along the path, her steps constricted by the trailing grave clothes uncertain, gentle, and without impatience. But um, in the English poet Caroline Duffy's account of this same event, it is a poem called Eurydice, 
No one is uncertain, gentle, and without impatience. Least of all the woman, Eurydice, who has been woken from a place that she says suited me down to the ground. Girls, I was dead and down in the underworld. A shade, a shadow of my former self, no when. It was a place where language stopped, a black full stop, a black hole where the words had come to an end. And end they did there. Last words, famous or not, it suited me down to the ground. So imagine me there, unavailable, out of this world, then picture my face in that place of eternal repose, in the one place you think a girl would be safe, from the kind of a man who follows her around writing poems, hovers about while she reads them, calls her his muse, and once sulked for a night and a day because she remarked on his weakness for abstract nouns. Just picture my face when I heard, ye gods, a familiar knock-knock on death's door. Him. Big O. Larger than life. With his lyre. And a poem to pitch. With me as the prize. Things were different back then. For the men, verse wise. Big O was the boy, legendary. The blurb on the back of his books claims that animals artwork to zebra flocked to his side when he sang. Fish leapt in their shoals at the sound of his voice. Even the mute sullen stones at his feet wept wee silver tears. Bollocks. <laughs> I'd done all the typing myself, I should know. And given my time all over again, rest assured that I'd rather speak for myself than be dearest, beloved, dark lady, white goddess, etc., etc. In fact, girls, I'd rather be dead. <laughs> but the gods are like uh, publishers, usually male. And what you doubtless know of my tale is the deal. Orpheus strutted his stuff. The bloodless ghosts were in tears. Sisyphus sat on his rock for the first time in years. Tantalus was permitted a couple of beers. The woman in question could scarcely believe her ears. Like it or not, I must follow him back to our life. Eurydice, Orpheus's wife, to be trapped in his images, metaphors, similes, octaves and sextets, quatrains and couplets, elegies, limericks, vanillas, histories, myths. He'd been told that he mustn't look back or turn round, but walk steadily upwards, myself right behind him, out of the underworld, into the upper air that for me was the past. He'd been warned that one look would lose me forever and ever. So we walked. We walked. Nobody talked. The girls, forget what you've read. It happened like this. I did everything in my power to make him look back. 
What did I have to do, I said, to make him see we were through? I was dead, deceased. I was resting in peace, passe, lace, past my cell by days. I stretched out my hand to touch him once on the back of the neck. Please, let me stay. But already the light had saddened from purple to grey. It was an uphill scalp from death to life. And with every step, I willed him to turn. I was thinking of filching up the poem out of his cloak when inspiration finally struck. I stopped, thrilled. He was a yard in front. My voice shook when I spoke. Orpheus, your poem's a masterpiece. I'd love to hear it again. He was smiling modestly when he turned. When he turned and he looked at me. What else? I noticed he hadn't shaved. I waved once and was gone. The dead are so talented. The living walk by the edge of a vast lake near the wise drowned silence of the dead.
Um, when Seamus Heaney's play, The Cure, um, sorry, The um, Burial at Thebes was on in the Abbey Theatre in Dublin, I bumped into him and I asked him, how's it going? Like, what, what's it like in there? And he smiled. And that sense he could do of pure wonder at something. And he just said two words and he said, Cathy Belton. And uh, Cathy was in that production. And Seamus then spoke about how, just how much he admired her work. There was that, what she was doing to his lines and also that level of interpretation, which we all know from her work. So it's an absolute pleasure to have her here, home, back in the home place, in a place where, you know, Seamus really, really admired you. So it's marvellous you're here. And I think... Um, I think I can speak for both of us and for everybody here that uh, listening to you is just, just, it's just so great. Thank you very much for coming. Um, and I want to thank everyone in the home place for all their hospitality and for their welcome and their efficiency. And I want to thank, thank Dark McEnumbra, who produced this, for all the care and attention he's paid to every single detail. And I want to thank the Arts Council, but especially Audrey Keane, who's, you know, I, we, we started with a tiny idea and it was built and it was just having her at the other end of the phone or at Zoom just to go through all the ideas. And she has been working with me as laureate for the last few years and we have one more year to go. So I, it's such a pleasure working with you, Audrey, and thank you very much. In the meantime, the underworld remains. <laughs> and there's another myth about the underworld and the world above, and the woman moving between the two that has also energized poets. And Ivan Boland sets the scene in a poem called Pomegranate. The only legend I've ever loved is the story of a daughter lost in hell and found and rescued there. Love and blackmail are the gist of it. Ceres and Persephone, the names. The story is that the god of the underworld, Hades, he's the god, he fell in love with the mortal, the beautiful Persephone, and he dragged her to the underworld where she was sought by her mother, Demeter. It was agreed that Persephone could live six months on earth and remain six months each year in the underworld. Now, in his version in Latin, Ovid called Demeter, or Demeter, Ceres, and Persephone, Prosperina. And in his Tales from Ovid, Ted Hughes let us know what a rage Ceres was in. This is the mother, when she discovered that her daughter had been abducted. <clears throat> it was if, it was as if only now. Ceres first heard of her loss. She ripped her hair out in knots. She hammered her breasts with her clenched fists. Yet still she knew nothing of where her daughter might be. She accused every country on earth, reproached them for all their ingratitude, called them unworthy of their harvests above the rest. She cursed Sicily that had kept this token of her daughter. 
Then she slew man and beast in the furrow with an instant epidemic throughout the island. She broke up the plows with her bare hands, forbade the fields to bear a crop of any kind. She made all seeds sterile. This island that had boasted its plenty throughout the world lay barren. As soon as the blade showed green, the grain died. In Ivan Boland's version, a woman in Dublin walks out in summer twilight searching for her daughter at bedtime. She finds her. And then later in winter, she watches her daughter sleeping safely in a suburban house in Dundrum in a scene that offers a mythological underpin to the anti-heroic, the ordinary. It is winter and the stars are hidden. I climb the stairs and stand where I can see my child asleep beside her teen magazines, her can of Coke, her plate of uncooked fruit. Persephone, because she ate the fruit, the seeds of the pomegranate in the underworld, cannot ever live fully on earth again. Thus, she moved between above and below, going back to Hades when it is winter and coming to earth when it is spring. The story of her abduction by Hades and the frantic efforts of her mother to get her back offered the American poet Louise Glick, winner of the Nobel Prize for Literature in 2020. And Louise died last month, and we must remember her tonight as a, as a special presence here as well. A tone, she wrote this poem in a tone that is all hushed and exploratory. In her book, Averno, published in 2006, she offers several versions of this story, one of them infused with a coiled anger at Hades' abduction of Persephone. When Hades decided he loved this girl, he built for her a duplicate of earth, everything the same, down to the meadow, but with a bed added. Everything the same, including sunlight, because it would be hard on a young girl to go so quickly from bright light to utter darkness. Gradually, he thought he'd introduce the night, first as the shadows of fluttering leaves, then moon, then stars, then no moon, no stars. Let Persephone get used to it slowly. In the end, he thought she'd find it comforting. Did Persephone ever get her revenge? Or was she forced to move between above and below forever, slowly accepting her fate? Is that what myth means? If so, can you change the meaning of a myth? One possible answer is that a myth ends in a poem or can be transformed by a poem, in this case, a poem by Nulani Gonal. Persephone. No be borefum of all here. It's not be malaha. Kagan ad ving or awasana is not yinis rudarth. Gorhogus machir the own var quail darica in a VMW. Fishikodalson is called Mandla, not fitting Judo. 
Hug she lesser, Ross her solemn, her rain matna. Beyond Glouston, co mar, co shiddleson, go go ilat garawad skihan fui. Hial she thrall is velvetum, is hug she dum eat less, does she gamachum, ak, aimra the wan, ton tick saw on a hurricane. Dear she gamade them a van reen, er hikach an oil. Ganyan she reeled them, cock hoilu, le hain chenakui hollowood. Tugan she diamondy them, is showed the humahola. Octawan be a gown. And is dear at Hugatahum ul granach. Tashe cryrog is long de hilte, er nos the milte is the milta brain to fuller. Persephone, suffering from seasonal affective disorder. Now don't go ringing the cops, Mum, and don't be losing the bap. I admit I was out of line and over the top when I hitched a ride with that sexy guide in his wow of a BMW. But he was such a super chat-up, I couldn't give him the push. He booked us a foreign holiday, no travel agent runs. His car so jet-propelled with revs, the engine soared on wings. He said he would buy me velvet gowns and satin under things. And his credit's fine. He leaves me space. Though I have to say there's not much light in the place. He's signing me the title deeds to all his stately homes. He's for putting my name in lights as a star of the silver screen. He has me flooded with rings and pearls, but the menu's pretty thin. I've just been served a pomegranate. It's crimson, dripping with seeds. A vertebral cade me the falcha of drops of blood. Thank you.
It's, it's often easy to miss the point of a poem. Often you find something later you didn't see before. And maybe at the beginning, I was so interested in the use of myth and in the reference to the underworld that I missed the real point, perhaps, of Seamus Heaney's poem, The Underground. It is a poem about marriage. Now, in, even in the 20th century in Irish poetry, it's very hard to find. I mean, it's not as though, I mean, okay, there are no poems about divorce, but there are no poems about marriage. I think Yeats, think the great poems of unrequited love, where are the poems about marriage? Think um, her dark hair would weave a snare in Patrick Kavanagh. Where are the poems about marriage? Austin Clark. So this poem at the beginning, Seamus Heaney's poem, The Underground, that used myth is actually a poem, an Irish poem that's breaking space, that's breaking glass to create space. And that space is the idea of love and the idea of a sort of established love, not longing, but love. And so it sets out to celebrate love, and then it sets out to celebrate perhaps even happiness. It's Irish poetry. There's something heady about this, and the couple, it's not just the couple, but the poem, the rush to catch the tube and attend the concert in London on their honeymoon. There's a sort of excitement in the poem that's a rare sound in Irish poetry that is so good in general over the centuries in registering disappointment. Suddenly, the Orpheus figure was saying, damned if I look back, he was breaking the mold. A decade later, Ivan Boland said about breaking the mold for how a woman in Ireland might describe her marriage. It was a poem called Love, published in her volume, In a Time of Violence. Now, this is a poem, as she says, as she writes, in which myths collide. The poet herself is a sort of Orpheus in the poem, she invokes Aeneas in the underworld, and also Icarus's dangerous flight over the world above, and so Ceres, and also Ceres and Persephone. And she remembers once more this idea of a child who recovered from illness. But to match this, or, or set against it, Ivan Boland finds a plain-spoken tone that belongs to her and belongs to now. And she heightens this tone, she makes it taut, but remains the voice of a contemporary woman speaking. The opening of the poem is in Iowa, a real place in a real time. And the poem, having dealt with myth, how myths collide, will speak with clear-eyed truth. Now watch as the poem ends, how Ivan Boland evokes the image of Orpheus walking ahead in a place of shadows with Eurydice behind. But Eurydice is the one who sings or the one who speaks or the one who writes, Ivan Boland and Eurydice have turned the myth around. And this is the complete poem, Ivan Boland's poem, Love. Dark falls on this midwestern town where we once lived when myths collided. Dusk has hidden the bridge in the river which slides and deepens to become the water the hero crossed on his way to hell. Not far from here is our old apartment. We had a kitchen and an almost table. We had a view. And we discovered there love had the feather and muscle of wings and had come to live with us.
a brother of fire and air. We had two infant children, one of whom was touched by death in this town and spared. And when the hero was hailed by his comrades in hell, their mouths opened and their voices failed, and there is no knowing what they would have asked about a life they had shared and lost. I am your wife. It was years ago. Our child was healed. We love each other still. Across our day-to-day -day and ordinary distances, we speak plainly. We hear each other clearly. And yet I want to return to you on the bridge of the Iowa River as you are, with snow on the shoulders of your coat and a car passing with its headlights on. I see you as a hero in a text, the image blazing and the edges gilded. And I long to cry out the epic question, my dear companion. Will we ever live so intensely again? Will love come to us again and be so formidable at rest it offered us ascension even to look at him? But the words are shadows and you cannot hear me. You walk away and I cannot follow. <laughs>